continuing on in 1 John. We've been doing fairly small chunks. It's a bigger chunk this morning. So if you can turn in your Bible to 1 John and chapter 3. We're reading from verse 11 to chapter 4, verse 6. 1 John 11, uh, sorry, 3, 11 to 4, 4, verse 6. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked, one and, uh, one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his, uh, his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not marvel, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we pass from death to life because we love the brothers and sisters. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for, the, for one another, for the brothers and sisters in the fellowship and in the church. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe in, on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us, as he gave us commandments. Now, he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he, in, and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you've heard was coming and is now already in the world. You are of God, little children. You've overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world. Therefore, they speak as of the world and the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So last week we considered the fact that God's love has been poured out, and we use the word absolutely abundantly poured forth from his heart upon us. And that results in the fact that we are then declared children of God. Declaration has been made over you. The title has been given to you. You are officially, in God's standing, a child of God because he has lavishly poured out his love upon you. However, it doesn't end there, because ultimately, we, we heard, when we encounter Jesus, that moment when we see him face to face, when he comes, we will be transformed to be like him, because we'll see him just as he is. And at that moment of, of, of connection with him, he will transform us into our eternal being. What a wonderful day that will be. And at that moment, we don't just have the title of children of God. We can become children of God in every form, just as it was originally envisaged in God's heart for us to be. 
And this knowledge we heard should affect our behavior immediately as we begin to live now as we will one day live. In other words, eternal life doesn't start then, it starts now. And we have the responsibility to start living that out from day one of our salvation. And we conclude by saying that the ultimate test of the fact that we're children of God is if we love one another, as if we love our brothers and sisters. And it's this theme that John begins this passage with today. Love one another. John tells us that the fundamental response of the gospel message is that we should love one another. That if we have really understood and taken Jesus into our heart, we should love one another. If we really truly responded to what he's done for us on the cross, we should love one another. That's the response that proves the validity of our faith, that we love one another. It was the message they heard from the beginning. In other words, it must have been fundamental to Jesus' teachings as he sought to form a community amongst this ragbag bunch of disciples whom he had called. Right from the beginning, he must have been saying, look, love one another, love one another, love one another. And that's something of that has got into John's heart. And every time he, he talks, he can't help but express, look, this is what Jesus told us to do. Love one another. And then once more, John enters his black and white world to tell us that if we hate another brother or sister, we're effectively a murderer like Cain, who was jealous of his brother's righteous actions compared to his own. Is it really to be like Cain to hate another brother or sister? Hate is a very strong word, isn't it? If a child says, I hate you, you normally deal with them straight away. It's such a strong word, isn't it? It's it's the ultimate rejection of somebody else. But, 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 But John, in his black and white world, is saying, if you do hate somebody, even if it's just not expressed, but just in your heart, you're no different from Cain. And of course, what did Cain do? He killed his brother. And if we go back to the story of Cain and Abel, we see these two brothers presenting their offerings to God. One, Cain, brings the fruit of his labors. The other, Abel, brings a sacrifice. The issue with Cain is not just that he got got it wrong in terms of his offering, but it was rather how he reacted to getting it wrong. You see, when God pointed out his error, when God came to him and said, look, Cain, you got it wrong this time. You were offering what you'd, you'd made, what you had created, whereas Abel was offering a sacrifice knowing that he was never going to be good enough, and therefore he was worshipping through sacrifice. But, but next time you can get it right, he said to Cain. How did Cain react when God pointed out his error? Cain got angry. He wasn't repentant. He didn't say, oh, sorry, God, got it wrong this time. He just got angry. And at that moment, he had a choice. He could deal with his anger and put things right with God. Or he could remain in his anger and let it work its way through him. And God said, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule it. Instead of dealing with his anger, he poured it all out on his brother, choosing to see him as the source of the trouble rather than dealing with his own issues. I see this attitude rife in society today. People want someone else outside themselves to blame for their issues and their troubles. They look for someone outside themselves to take responsibility and then they pour out their anger upon them. It's the government's fault. 
It's the, my upbringing. It was my parents' fault. It's the education system. The bottom line is, whilst all of those things might contribute to our circumstances, how we act, react to those things will be the t- determiner of the person we'll become. Cain had every opportunity to deal with his anger, but he didn't, and so he became a murderer. And if we do not deal with negative reactions at source and allow God's healing to come into our souls, we'll end up in a worse place than where we started. And John uses this example with respect to our behavior in the body of Christ. Essentially, he's telling us that if we don't deal with our anger when we fall out with our brother or sister, we're no different from Cain. If anyone's hurt you or upset you or disappointed you, first deal with the issue within yourself by forgiving them. And then, if necessary, sort it out directly with the person with whom you've had the breakdown in relationship. It's this that keeps the body of Christ strong. Now, nobody ever hurts us or upsets us in the body of Christ, do they? Nobody ever treads on our toes or misuses us in any way, disappoints us, lets us down. That never happens, does it? We're human. It's the reality of being human. It's part of the human condition. But John's instruction for us is don't let it fester. Don't let anger build up. Don't let unforgiveness stay undealt with. Don't let yourself remain in that place of criticism and negativity towards another sister. He says, deal with it. Otherwise, you're no different from Cain. And he, and he goes on to say that this is actually the proof that we've passed from death to life. And the choice is stark. Live in love or remain in death. However, he also tells us that, that if we live this way, It will only exacerbate the world's hatred of us as the world will be jealous of our relationships together. You want to be hated by the world? Love your brothers and sisters. So in order to illustrate this point further, John gives them the example of Jesus who laid down his life for us, he reminds us. He tells us that we should also lay down our lives for one another. John is not suggesting that our love for one another should end with a warm, fuzzy feeling inside, but rather should be self-sacrificial. Nobody could have done more for others than Jesus. He gave up his very life for us. It was the greatest act of altruism in the history of humanity. And he did it not for his own benefit, but rather to rescue humanity from death. Now, we, we hear stories of people in Dire situations who do sacrifice themselves, of perhaps soldiers who throw themselves on a grenade to save their friends or, or other people in, in dark situations. However, such acts are nothing compared to what Jesus did. He suffered more than anyone. He went through death so that we might triumph over the grave and have eternal life. And John says that it's just such self-sacrificial love that is to be the example of how we are towards one another. But as ever, John doesn't leave it up in the air just as a theory. He then roots it very practically. He says, if I've got money or possessions, but my brother or sister is in need, and I don't show pity towards them and use what I have to help them, then the love of God isn't in me. That's harsh, isn't it? 
Our love for one another has to be genuine with actions, not just with words. It can't just be, I love you, and then go home and just ignore another brother's and sister's needs. It's got to be practical, John says. And I think we need to consider this not just locally, not just within a fellowship, not just within the church in the UK, but internationally. Many of our brothers and sisters are suffering all around the world from need, whether it's through government depriving them of resources because they're Christians or other things, or just because of the function of the unfairness of the world. Are there things we can do? Are there resources we can give? Is there a way we can help them? Perhaps we cannot help all of them, but we can help some of them. We have responsibility to the church worldwide. And John goes on to say that the external evidence of our love for one another is the things we do for our brothers and sisters. But then he goes on to say there's also an internal evidence. The external evidence is in your actions that prove whether you love. But there's also an inward evidence. And that's that place of inner peace and rest when we're in God's presence. The evidence occurs in our heart. In other words, he's saying you can't deceive God. You may be able to pretend to be loving towards others. You may pretend that you are fine with everybody. But if you're still nursing bad feelings towards another person in your heart, it will be shown up when you're in that quiet place with God. He says your own heart will condemn you. If there's no malice or bad thoughts towards another brother or sister, you can have confidence when you come into the presence of God. Further, if our heart is right when we come to God, and we're not holding stuff against others, he says our prayers will be heard and answered. It's in that place when there's nothing wrong in our conscience, when there's nothing telling us that we're not in that right place. It's in that place that our our lives will line up with his will. And we see God doing amazing things in response to our prayers. Do you want your prayers answered? Perhaps there's stuff that you might be holding on to against another brother or sister. Only you know it's between you and God. Deal with it and see what God can do. That's what John is telling us. What our life of faith boils down to, says John, is to believe in Jesus and to love one another. That's the simplest expression of our faith that's possible to state. Believe in Jesus. Love one another. It's to believe that Jesus was who he was, who, who he says he was, did what he said he told, uh, what we're told he did, achieved all that the Bible said he achieved on the cross and in the resurrection, and let that work out in terms of our attitude and actions towards our brothers and sisters. Just as an aside, there's a wonderful Trinitarian affirmation in these verses, verse 23 to 24. We're told we obey God's commands. By believing in his son and the Holy Spirit lives within us to confirm that we are in him. John just drops that in to affirm the Trinity. Now John takes a slightly different tack. He talks about testing the spirits. He picks up on the fact that the Holy Spirit is within us. And John tells us that we must test the spirits. In the context, John tells us that this is a key indicator of heresy. And he's trying to help us to detect those who are teaching wrong stuff and misleading people. 
And as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, one of the key battles of the early church was docetism, that believed that Jesus wasn't actually ever, didn't actually come in a physical body, but was just a spirit. Docetism was Gnostic in that it believed that all that was material was disgusting and that the only life that was of value was a spiritual one and hence the flesh should be mortified. And so for a Gnostic, the notion of God becoming flesh was an absolute horrendous idea. However, John tells us that anyone who denies that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, in a flesh and blood body, is not from God and is operating in an antichrist spirit. See, the mystery of the incarnation is one of the fundamental beliefs of the Christian church. And each year at Christmas, we remember that Almighty God came to earth through the virgin birth. It's not just a story. It's not a myth. It's a fundamental truth. And John says those who deny this reality are operating in an antichrist spirit. The world tries to rob us of this truth. Christmas has become a celebration of excess and feasting, a magical time for children, a time of gift giving, of twinkly lights and tinsel. But without Jesus at the center, it's just a sham. It's an empty festival devoid of any meaning. And I would encourage you this autumn in the run up to Christmas, celebrate in whatever way you think best, but don't let the world squeeze Jesus out of your celebrations. Because this is a fundamental truth that we need to uphold. We believe, we live because he lived. He, we live because he lived on earth and died a physical death, flesh and blood death. He came to redeem us. That's our fundamental truth. And he came in a body as almighty God, but as a, as a, as a child of the Virgin Mary. Hang on to it, believe it, trust it. John says that proves the reality of our faith. And then we come to one of, another, one of John's frequently misquoted statements. Greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world. In the context, John is saying that because the Holy Spirit is in us, we can discern when something is from God or from the world. The statement's often used to remind us that we're on the winning side. And although that may be a valid truth, that's not what it means in the context. As we've said, the context is all about identifying truth from error and the proclaimers of truth from those who would propagate heresy. If we proclaim the truth, John says, those who have the spirit of God in them will recognize the truth. However, if the spirit is not in them, they will not. We're able to take our stand in the truth because God's spirit is in us. In these days, this is important. In the church worldwide, there is much error being taught. And I would not necessarily say that it's all heresy, but it's certainly error. And if not checked, we'll end up in heresy. We need to be those who are discerning in this. And John has given us a number of methods for, for, for sussing out truth from error. And these are the five things he says. Is the person loving towards the body of Christ? or judgmental and condemnatory? Secondly, does that love find expression in action? Thirdly, do they affirm the reality of who Jesus is and his work on the cross? Fourthly, does it sit right in your spirit, i.e., does the Holy Spirit ring any alarm bells when you, hit, when you are listening to them? 
And fifthly, are they open to correction? All of these things together should be able to guide us to discern good teaching from bad. In these days, ensure you're subject to good teaching that reinforces who Jesus is and all that comes as a consequence of the cross. Be discerning. Don't just listen to anybody. There's a lot of bad teaching out there. And it's broadcast every day on a number of channels. So, in summary of today's teaching, love one another. Let love be confirmed through actions. Hold on to the truth concerning Jesus. Be discerning and test the spirit behind any teaching which doesn't sit right. Amen.